Hi, this is Pastor Grayson Gilbert from Missio Day Fellowship of Kenosha, Wisconsin. I'm thankful you found our sermons, and I hope that they've been an encouragement to you in your walk with Christ. This sermon was, however, preached to and for the people that God has entrusted to me here. We would ask that if you are in our area, we would encourage you to come and worship with us, but that if you are not in our area, know that these sermons, while valuable resources, are simply no replacement for your own local church. And so in light of that, we would say you are to submit yourself to the faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Today we're going to be in Psalm 56, and this is a rather wonderful psalm, but I want to give you a little bit of background information and just some um, stylistic stuff, or essentially, before we get into that. So at the beginning, you can see right through the heading, at least with some of yours, I might say, that it is a tune set to the uh, song of a dove on distant oaks. We don't really know what that is, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time there, but you can also see that it's a mictum. And we don't know what that is either. So why do I start with this? Well, it's in the superscription, and I just simply want to let you know. The idea behind it, though, is that this is a psalm of lament. This is a psalm of lament simply because what David is emphasizing throughout this psalm is that he is being oppressed and he is being fearful. We can see from the occasion that it's actually set to a timing in which he would have been um, at Gath. This is a town during the time of which he would have escaped from Nob, but he's at Gath now, and he's under the attack of the Philistines. He's also under the attack of King Saul. So the sections that break out in this psalm are all of a reflection of this, beloved. My point in that is simple, is that as you look at this, you'll see that David is not having just some rose-tinted glasses on. He's actually seeing some very severe oppression and affliction by the hands of some wicked men. Now, as you look at it, the structure breaks into two clean parts pretty much in this psalm. Verses 1 through 7 and verses 8 through 13. In verses 1 through 7, they are both actually doing the same thing in one sense, but in verses 1 through 7, it's approaching this idea of trusting in God from the vantage point of saying that when our fears arise, we ought to ultimately put our faith in God and His Word. And the second vantage point or aspect would be from verses 8 to 13. It says that we remember in times of fear God's special care for us. So when you look at both of those in conjunction, the truth of the psalm is saying, ultimately, that we can put our trust in God. Why? Because he cares for us. Verses 3 through 4 and 10 through 11 actually highlight this main point quite well because it's a refrain. And as you know, a refrain in music is actually trying to tell you something pretty significant there. But the reality of this psalm, though, is that it speaks to something everybody here has in one way, shape, or another. And that's that you are all a creature We are in God's world, and each one of us as a creature in a sinful and broken world at this point is given to fear of some sort. David moves from fear to faith, and the reason why he does so ultimately is that he can trust in God. His hope is not placed in the different mechanisms that you and I are so often chasing after or prone to falling into. Rather, he ultimately just looks to the character and to the promises of God. He looks at God and his word, in other words, and draws his strength and sustenance in these times. By doing this, David puts things in their proper perspective. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, much like the book of Ecclesiastes says that everything in this life is havel, vanity, vapor, if you will. Everything is temporary and frail. So too is David looking at the nature of mankind and saying that they are temporary and frail. And if these are his mighty enemies, how much do they pale in comparison to the strong God who is, the sovereign one? 
But the point of this psalm is not simply that God is the sovereign one. The point of this is that the sovereign one cares for his children. So what I want to do with all that in mind now is simply take you through the text to lay this out. So if you would look with me at verse 1, and before I treat that, I'll give you just a very brief synopsis again of the historical background, but the idea again is that he is in Gath, and this is prior to him becoming king. So David is on the run. He's got enemies on every single side. He's been anointed to become the next king, and yet there's that bit of a problem with Saul, isn't there? Right? Saul is hunting him down. He's not too pleased with David. So David flees from town to town, and along the way, he winds up in a place called Gath. Now, this gives him one problem to the next, because Gath is the realm of the Philistines. Now, the Philistines don't like David all that much either, because he has this wonderful habit of just killing their best warriors, right? So these men recognize David, and they say to the king of Gath, hey, is this not David, the king of the land? Is he not the one they sing about in their songs, right? Saul is slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. So his reputation precedes him, evidently. But David overhears this, and what it tells us is that when this happened, David took these words to heart, and he greatly feared the king of Gath. Now, the Hebrew is a bit more visceral. It tells us that David is altogether filled with dread. That's the reality at hand here. And so the question is then, what does David do with his fear? Well, as you see in verse 1, what does he do? But he actually just takes it and turns to God. He says, be gracious to me, O God. Why? For man has trampled on me. Now, the word for grace here is he's not doing this in presumption, as you can obviously tell, as if he's demanded God's grace, but he just, he comes before the mighty king and he says, I need your undeserved favor, much like we would understand grace to be in the New Testament, right? Immediately, though, what he's doing is positioning himself in a sense of weakness. He recognizes that God is the one who is above all things, that he is a mere mortal man. And the reason we can actually say this is because of the different terms that he uses in this psalm. Now, I'll return to that briefly, but what I want you to begin to understand, at least at the onset, is that David knows his theology well, so to speak. In other words, he knows his Bible well. He knows who he is. He knows who God is. And so he's going to place himself before the infinite creator as a mortal man and admit He's afraid. He's powerless to do anything, to stop anything of what's going on right now, but he recognizes in the midst of that that God is not. God is the supremely powerful one, and ultimately, as we will see here today, this supremely powerful God of all the universe is the one who intimately cares for his servant David. And so it's out of this reality that David asks for God's grace, right? But he starts in fear. So let's see how he begins to work through his fears. Again, look back down at verses 1 through 2. He says, Be gracious to me, O God, O Elohim, for man has trampled upon me. Fighting all day long, he oppresses me. My foes have trampled upon me all day long, for they are many who fight proudly against me. Now, you may not catch it in the English here, but what he's actually doing is, again, immediately starting this by contrasting man and God. That contrast isn't seen in the English, but if you notice, I said the word Elohim in place of God. That's the term he uses, but he also calls man Enosh. Now, the word for Enosh is often used to speak of man just being simply insignificant. He is frail. In other words, it's actually speaking towards the fact that all mankind is mortal. They will die. They will go to the grave. 
So immediately, David looks upon these men who are causing him some very real problems, and he says, they are Enosh. They are just men. They are frail. They're weak. They're finite. They might be dangerous, but they are Enosh, fickle men nonetheless. And then he says the word Elohim, right? For God, he says, be gracious to me, O Elohim. Now, that word for Elohim is actually a word designated to show just how supremely sovereign God is above over, over in all creation. Now, the, in, the, in the Hebrew here, it's used in the plural form, and it's not speaking of the Trinity. It's actually what's called a plural of majesty. And a plural of majesty, it's not just a technical term I want to show you today, but the reality is it's showing God is the supremely, supremely sovereign one. It emphasizes it all the more. What he's lifting up is the fact that God is the supreme creator. He is the supreme sustainer. He is the supreme judge of all the earth. Before him, there is nothing hidden. Nothing is removed from his sight. His ear cannot be darkened, or shall I should say, cannot hear, right? In every single aspect, man cannot hide from this one who is above it all. And he says, mankind is frail and weak at their best. And therefore, David says, as we will see I have no need to fear. But again, David starts in this place of fear. This is what I would argue is actually so wonderful about this psalm in many different ways is because he doesn't have rose-tinted glasses on and pretend as if everything's okay. He's not looking at these men who are trying to kill him and hunt him down and saying they're not really a big threat. He's actually coming before God and saying, look, God, I'm afraid I recognize who these men are, but I recognize who you are. And therefore, I'm going to put my trust in you, but I'm afraid. He's a man just like you and I. His heart's given to dread like anybody else. But what he does with his fear is what's the important thing. So look what he does in verse 3. It says, when I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise. In God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? I want you to notice in verse 3, in one sense, it's, it's slightly ambiguous, right? We know from the context what he's talking about are what these men are doing to him in verses 1 through 2, and also we see in 5 through 7. But the reality is that it's an open-ended statement, isn't it? It's showing that there is a potential for fear to arise again. There's a specific reference to time. He says, when I'm afraid, I will put my trust in you. And the point I'm trying to make is that this, this is not the only time that this David will be afraid, likely. He re- rec- I'm sorry, forgive me, my mouth is tongue-tied. He recognizes that there are actual consequences to living in a dangerous world, and that much of the time, fear will actually be the response that he has. And yet he's not content to stay here. The idea is that he's looking at it and saying, I I do not want to be here. I want to put my full trust and confidence in God himself, in Elohim, the one who is the mighty and strong over all of creation. And the presumption, ultimately, that is being made here is that you and I are also just a a fickle and frail people, that we are often given to fear. And if you were to look at the scriptures, they command not to be afraid well over 200 times. So whether you deal with the fear of man or fear of the unknown or fear of really anything else, the reality is that this psalm not only testifies to the God who is above fear in the sense that he is one in control of everything, but that there is actually a remedy for our fears. 
And beloved, this is what enabled David to see things in their proper perspective. This was what enabled him to be able to look upon man and say he is a frail creature, especially when compared to the infinite, unfrail God of all the universe. So his response then was to put his trust in God. Right? The, the crisis had not gone away. The occasion for fear had not evaporated. He placed his faith in Elohim, the creator mighty and strong, the one who controls all things. Whenever he is faced with fear of any sort, he says, I will resolve to trust in this one who is God. He will take away my fear, in other words. There's a simple and yet profound truth in this, this short verse, right? When I'm afraid, I will put my trust in you that I think that we often just ignore. We often don't even put into practice. The reason I say that is that the natural reflex of the Christian should always be to trust in God when fears arise. He should be the first one we go to. No matter how small our fears may be, he should be the one that we run to first. Now, I can think of this with our own kids. With, with my three little ones, they're not so little anymore, but with all three of them at various points, we have gone into the room because they called us. We heard them quietly weeping, or they came into our room and woke us up because they were afraid. Right, we sit them down and we're like, okay, what's wrong, sweetheart? And there's always some reason why they're afraid. It could be they heard a noise, they thought something was in their closet, and we would do all the different things that parents normally do, which is you check under the bed and you go into the closet and you tell them nothing's there, right? But at the end of the day, what do they still say half the time? Still afraid, right? You didn't take away the fear. So we would sit with them and we would recite this verse and we would have them recite it and then we would talk about it. We would explain to them why we can trust in God when we're afraid. We would tell them, sweetheart, God sees everything. Literally sees everything. There is not something outside of his sight. He knows everything. He has created all things. In fact, he has created them for himself and for his glory and nothing exists apart from his sustaining hand. He is the one who not only breathed it into creation, but he sustains it by his might and power this very day. He is all-powerful. He is smarter than mom and dad. He is the one who loves you more than mom and dad. He is the one who cares for you. Nothing can harm you unless God allows it. And yet, even if the worst were to happen, if you die... If you believe in Jesus Christ, you will live. This is what we would tell our kids regularly. I mean, there were times, of course, where we would get tired of it, and we're like, okay, go back to bed, kid. But the reality is we were still trying to work with them and say, listen, there's a reason why you have fear, and you need to trust in your heavenly Father. God watches over us, and he cares for us. So why would we bother telling them all of that? Well, the reason is not only because this is what the scriptures teach, but this is what actually drives away fear. The God who is, is the one who can take fear. Our trust in God is not dependent on how we feel, in other words, beloved. Our trust is dependent on who God is, what he has promised, and what he has revealed about himself in his word. And he has always proven faithful to those very things. Has he not? The reason why you and I can have any confidence in God at all, for one, 
It's because of who he has revealed himself to be, but for two, that he has always shown himself to be faithful to the uttermost. Therefore, we can say along with David, as he does in this psalm, when I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. But we have to have a basis for it, do we not? We have to be able to look at it and say objectively, why then do I trust this God who is? Well, for David, the basis of his trust was the fact that God had given him his word. This is what he tells us right in verse 4, doesn't it? He says, when I am afraid, verse 3, I will put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can a mere man do to me? So in one sense, you can see that David is immediately bringing himself back to the word of God in order to be able to place his trust in his heavenly father. And and for David, this has two different aspects to it, right? David is bringing to remembrance the promises that were uniquely given to him, right? He was promised that he will become the next king. There are promises that will come further down the road that are uniquely to David, born out of the Davidic covenant. But right now, what he's doing is being able to look at this and say that I was anointed by the prophet Samuel. God has chosen me among all of my family to be the next king. Saul is openly persecuting me and trying to kill me. I'm in the midst of the land of the Philistines. And yet, I will not fear because I have put my trust in God. So keep all of this in mind as this is going on. David is recalling the word of the Lord uniquely given to him by the mouth of the prophet. Right? God will be faithful and make him king. At the same time, he's not limiting it to that either. It encompasses every bit of scripture that David would have had at that time, as well as the message of the prophets. But I want you to see that the object of David's praise is God himself, but is bound up in a reality of what God has revealed in his word to his servant. Because God has revealed himself, not only uniquely to David in some ways, but to Israel as a whole, David can take up the promises of Scripture and be able to take up the truth of Scripture and take that then and trust the God of Scripture. He did so much more than just simply meditating on the promises of Scripture. David was a diligent student of the Word. He would have taken it up and studied all of the teachings that God had given him to see who this God is, right? That's why he could say that God is Elohim. He is a creator, mighty and strong. He is a sovereign one above it all. Why? Because he could see God's sovereignty in display on the scriptures. He then could also study the scriptures and see what scripture has to say about mankind or the evildoer. He knows that God will judge them. He knows that God is supreme over them. He knows that God is the creator and they are the creation. He would have meditated upon these truths day and night and ultimately found his peace in the truth that God had given him uniquely, for one, but secondly, that God had given him and all of Israel in the word. And all this day would have brought him to trust in God all the more. This is the reason he could look upon his situation and say, on the day my fears will come, I will not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? He could look upon God and see him in all his power. He could look upon man and see him in his pomp and circumstance. He would compare the two and see that man is utterly weak, especially when you stack him against the creator. Now again, in verse 4 here, David uses a very different term than he did initially in verse 1 where he's talking about man. The word man here 
means flesh. Literally, the flesh upon your bones, your blood and flesh. And he's just making the point that mankind is ultimately just flesh and blood. That's it. They are the created being. God is the creator. God is the one who has given them life, and God is the one who can take that life. This is, in other words, God's world and flesh can do nothing against me. What he's basically showcasing is that the mere flesh and bones of mankind is impotent against the all-powerful creator who made him. Therefore, David says, in light of this truth, because man is flesh and blood and God is the creator, I shall not be afraid. I will put my faith in God, who is the infinite, who is the supreme sovereign one, who is the judge. I'll put my faith in this God and his word. So the natural question I ask literally all of you at this point, and I don't do it by way of rebuke, is have you learned to put your faith and trust in this God? And have you learned to do so by looking at God and his word and saying that this is who God is and this is in light of my circumstances that there is no reason for me now to actually fear? I think of all the decisions that can be made out of fear and I think of the ones that I'm looking at even in my own life right now, but they relate to virtually every single aspect of life, do they not? We can parent out of fear. We can make financial decisions out of fear. You can look upon your workplace and make those decisions out of fear. You can look upon your spouse and make those decisions out of fear. You can fail to preach the gospel to those you know who do not have it out of fear. Virtually every one of our decisions hinges on whether or not we trust God and his word, doesn't it? What else is it when we do not trust God and his word but some sort of fear? Beloved, David shows us that when fears arise, the first place we ought to go is to God and his word. We can plead that God would be gracious to us. We can lift up the very real situation, whatever it is that we might be in. We can cast ourselves before our God and say, when I'm afraid, I will put my trust in you. I will put my trust in God, whose word I praise, and I shall not be afraid. Why? Because nothing can do anything to me. The question then is, again, Is this the foundation for which we stand or fall? Do we stand upon the word of God and use it in that sense, not to just simply know about God and know about the Bible and about his promises, but actually look at them and say that God is the one who cares for me. God is the one who is sovereign over all creation. And that has certain implications in my life. In other words, that means something. The scriptures promise that whether you are a Christian or not, you will ultimately suffer in a broken and fallen world, no matter what. That's the guarantee for every last one of us. And the question then is, on that day, when the day of suffering arises or the day of fear comes, where will you and I turn? The answer is where you turn now. Do you place your trust in God and his word? That's exactly what David does here. And yet, he's not naive. He knows that these men are still attacking him. Look at verses 5 through 7, where you can see this. Again, these are not rose-tinted glasses that David approaches life through. He's actually 
in a very real predicament. It says, all day long, they distort my words. All of their thoughts are against me for evil. They attack, they lurk, they watch my steps as they have waited to take my life. Is that not just a profound level of hatred for David? He says they twist every single word that he speaks. No matter what he says, they pounce on it and they flip his words to mean the opposite. They lurk in the shadows. They watch his steps. They lie in wait ultimately for one reason and one reason alone. They just want his head. They want to kill him. Every move David makes, they pounce. They use it as an opportunity to just pour out their hatred of him, their malice. Picture it much like a lion on a prowler, circling around the weary David and just nipping at his heels every step he takes. He turns one way and they snap at his flesh yet again. And little by little, this now crowd of lions and jackals and everything else is just growing and encircling around him and growing tighter and tighter and tighter. And yet, what does David do? On the day my fears arise, I will put my trust in you, in God, in God whose word I praise. Now look at what he does here. He actually makes a very specific appeal to God. In verse 7, he asks that God would judge his enemies on account of their wickedness. He says, because of wickedness, cast them forth. In anger, put down the peoples, O God. In essence, what David's asking for, beloved, is that they would have no route of escape. These are men that are trying to catch him into the pit and bring him down, and David just says, let them fall into their own snare. Essentially, if I were to put it very, very bluntly, he says, let them be judged and go to hell. Let them face your wrath, Father, for they are wicked. They are hunting down my life. Each and every moment of the day, they are doing so. And many may be uncomfortable with what he's praying for here, but the reality is that David looks at the scriptures and he looks at who God has revealed himself to be and he looks at God's promises to judge the evildoer and he simply says, God, would you do that? You are the God of justice and wrath. You are the one who takes vengeance for his children. Would you take vengeance? Would you rescue me? Would you bring these men down to the pit? Let them face the destruction they so eagerly want to bring upon me. And what characterizes his entire appeal is that he actually trusts God. For one, he trusts that God will make good on his promises in his word, but he trusts that God is a God of vengeance and actually will take a pure, exacting form of vengeance, just as he says he would. David need not step up and do it himself. He doesn't need to exact his own vengeance. Again, think of everything he said in light of how powerful and sovereign God is and how fickle and frail mankind is and how wicked even mankind is. Imagine David then thinking about all the implications of this and seeing, look, I know my own heart. I know exactly what I'm given to. And if I rise up and try to take this myself, it will not go well. God is the God of vengeance. To him alone belongs vengeance. Therefore, he trusts him. Now, if you remember from the same story about David and Saul, later on, he's going to be in the cave of Adullam. And he's going to have this opportunity to actually take his own revenge In 1 Samuel 24, and it tells us about this, you don't need to flip there, so just hear it, but he says that Saul goes into the cave and he relieves himself, meaning he's actually going to the bathroom. And David and his men are hiding out in the caves and Saul doesn't know they're there. 
Well, David's men see him relieving himself in the corner of the cave, and they say to David, hey, look, this is the perfect opportunity. The Lord has delivered him right into your hands. Pick up the sword. All your troubles will be over, David. Just cut them down. That's all you have to do. You can take your own vengeance. But David doesn't do that, does he? No, David rebukes his men. He says he will not strike down the Lord's anointed one. And so he just cuts off a corner of Saul's robe and reveals it to the king. Hey, I could have killed you. Right? He's talking with the king and he tells him, even though Yahweh delivered you into my hands this very day, I took pity on you. Right? So he, first off, he recognizes God is sovereign, but he does not in that moment then exact his own vengeance. He exacts pity. Pretty much the opposite of what you and I would often do, right? He says, I took pity on you and I did not kill you, but you listen to these men who twist my words and say I am filled with evil intent and rebellion. Right? In every which way, he's got counselors around him who are filling his head with lies about David and what he wants to do. But David says, I've not even done this. I've not sinned against you. I've not sought your life, even though you were waiting to take my own. And then here's the real clincher to everything I'm saying here. He says, may Yahweh be judge and decide between you and me. May he see and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. May Yahweh judge. May Yahweh judge and do what is right. Even here, he doesn't then use this as an opportunity to try and plead his case with Saul. He pleads his case with Yahweh. Why? Because Yahweh is the sovereign one. Yahweh is the one who will take vengeance. Yahweh is the one true God who stands above the fickle and frail Saul and will enact his plans no matter what. But David is also a righteous man. He also actually cares about what the Lord has to say. He's not going to take the sinful way out of his trials, rather. Ultimately, it backs up everything that this psalm is saying and that David trusts that the Lord will do what is right. He need not fear, for the Lord is the sovereign one. He need not fear, for man is fickle and frail. He need not take his own route because he trusts the Lord. Yahweh will do what is right. Yahweh will judge. Why? Because he is the sovereign one. For some of you, this is an incredibly important point that I really desperately want you to hear just because that when the trials hit, and they will, beloved, you have basically one of two roads that you can take. There is a road where you can try and find your own way out. You can sinfully take it, and all the consequences will continue to come on all the more. Or things will just continue to get all the harder. Or you will spoil things, right? I mean, we've all done that. So you can try and find your own way out, or you can take your fears and lay them at the feet of your king. Radically different, isn't it? You can pray that God would relieve you of the trial, and he just might do that. He's incredibly merciful, and sometimes he's very pleased to do that. But sometimes he's even more pleased to bring us through that trial and refine us, that we might not only learn the appropriate way in which we can glorify God, but that we can trust in him all the more. In other words, he's pleased to bring us through weakness. 
And David's in a weak spot, is he not? He's a man who knows his theology well. He knows the word of God in and out. He knows his creator. And yet the trial has not lifted, has it? But remember what I said about the word for God or Elohim being in the plural. It was not just a technical point. It means, it emphasizes the supreme sovereignty of God over every single thing in creation. When you can actually see that God is truly sovereign, it is not just a theological point. It is not just a bludgeon for arguments. It's not just a a mere thing that you assent your heads to. It's that you can actually trust God. That God is the one who is in control of every minute detail of all of life. God sees it. God knows it, and God will take care of it. What David has relied upon is not merely the fact that God is the sovereign one. There's actually much more beyond it than just the fact that God is above every bit of it, but that this sovereign one cares for him. That's the beautiful thing that this song continues to testify to, that we can we can see through the rest of this is that he's looking at God and his word and he said, I have every occasion to trust in God because of what he's revealed about himself and how he's promised these things and how he's always been faithful to those promises. And yet, and yet I have every reason to trust God. Why? Because he cares for me. This creator, this sustainer, this all sovereign one is the one who sees my weary soul. He's the one who sees my heartache. He is the one who knows the reason why I must flee for my life. I want you to, to see this now in verses 8 through 9. This is really where we start to flee all, see all this flesh out. Right? He's just come off the cuffs of asking God to actually do something about his trials. He's saying, cast them down in your anger, right? Judge, do what is right. But then he comes back to God and says, you have taken account of my wanderings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. All right, so, so as David reflects upon this entire situation, as he's looking upon his enemies that surround him, he is seeing ultimately the tender mercy of God. Right, he's, he's saying, look, as these guys are snapping at my heels, you are taking account of every one of my steps. As I am fleeing, you are very much in the activity of counting them, meticulously keeping track of every single step that I have taken ever since I have fled for my life. Right, David, at this point, is just a nomad. He's a wandering vagabond. He has no home to hang his head in. He has no place to lay at true rest. But he can look at all the details of everything going on right now, and instead of being given more and more to fear because they are hounding after him, he knows that he is secure in the sight of God. He knows that God has seen every single one of his steps as he moves from place to place and even hides himself in the deep, dark caves. He knows that God has seen it. Right Now take that idea that God has tracked his steps, so to speak, and, and look back at verse 6 quickly. Right, You see that his enemies are described as these people. They attack, they lurk, and they, they too watch his steps, do they not? And so look at what he's saying here. On one hand, you have his enemies who are relentlessly pursuing him and looking to kill him, lurking in the shadows, waiting for him to slip up, all so they can just take that perfect time. They cause him grief and misery. They delight in doing so. They don't care about the state of his soul. They are just men of bloodshed and lies. They want to see him fall so they can kill him. They're tracking his every move. Look at 
And yet on the other hand, so those Elohim. God is watching over David so closely that he is able to say, God knows my every single step. God knows why he must wander. He knows that these men are chasing him down. He knows that they want to kill him. He sees David in his distress, and he sees David in his fear. And no detail of what's going on is lost to God at this point. And this is an incredibly beautiful reality when you consider what this actually means in light of our own trials. Right? Look at what he is saying about God in the midst of his trial. God sees every bit of it, right? So then look at your trial. God sees every bit of it, beloved. He's not aloof to the things that plague you. He sees the grief in your heart. He knows as you mourn the loss of your loved ones. He knows that you are struggling. He knows your worries as you watch your wife or your husband or your child forsake everything that is right and actually go the way of death and pain and ruin and destruction. God is aware of every single sigh of your soul. And the point I'm simply trying to make here is that on the one hand, you may have somebody who is mankind, right? Doing what they do best, which is making everything in life difficult and hard. They might be persecuting you. They might just be making your life misery. On the other hand, you have God who sees it all and knows it all. And beloved, he actually cares about it. Notice what David says next. He says, he actually requests that the Lord would put his tears in his bottle And he says, are they not in your book? In other words, have you not already recorded them? And the idea here is that just as you would use a bottle to preserve something precious, to hold it, to keep it as a keepsake, David is asking that the Lord would do so in his bottle, that the Lord would take kindness upon him. You know, picture it as he's going out into the desert. He's got like a wineskin, so to speak, and it's precious because you have that water or that wine that you need to be able to drink at a certain point. The Top of it doesn't allow it to escape, right? In much the same way, he's looking at this and saying, preserve my tears, Lord. Let them be as precious in your sight as the water in my wineskin. He knows that just as God has counted every single step he's taken, he has counted his tears. And so he says, preserve them. The amazing thing about this is that David doesn't look at all of his fears and his doubts and whatever else he's going through right now and says, God's just looking at me, shaking his finger and telling me to get a grip. That's not how God sees his servant. There's this tender affection that's on display here as distress is overwhelming the life of his servant. And this is a reality that as try as I might, I actually find it incredibly hard to just put it into words how precious even the tears of God's saints are for his people. In light of what he's talking about with David here, this is just a precious reality. But the point I'm actually wanting to make is that if the tears of David are so precious to God, what does that say about God's sight on David? Right? If, if the tears are, of God's saints are that precious to God, what does that say about how he views his people? Let me just ask you. When was the last time you stopped and just asked or even considered how much it is that God cares for you and for his church, for those blood-bought people that he purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ and saved. When was the last time you stopped and said, in spite of all my sin, in spite of all the ways I am prone to folly, 
that God actually does care for me. That he sees what's going on in my heart. He's not aloof to my struggles. He's not aloof to my persecutors. He is a God who preserves my every step. He is a God who counts my tears and will whisk them all away one day. He is a God who loves me. And the basis of that love rests not on what I do, but on the basis of Christ's shed blood for me. Because of Jesus Christ, I have confidence. Confidence that I will see him face to face one day. Confidence that my sin is not so odious and so ugly that God will reject me. Confidence that God, because he cared for me in that way, that he will continue to care for me in every way. This is what Paul takes up when he thinks about this reality. Right? He looks at the death of Jesus Christ on the cross and he says in Romans 8 that if, if God gave up his own son to die in our place, he then asks the question, how much more will he freely give us all things in addition or along with Christ? His point is that we've been shown grace upon grace for one because our sins have been wiped away because God has now looked at us through his son, Jesus Christ, but that God actually gave us his son. He sent him to die in our place and die the death that we deserve and take the curse that we should have bore. And he says, if God did that, beloved, how much more so will God care for you? How much more freely will he give you all things that you need? The tender mercies of God are always on display, beloved. His grace sustains us every single day. That same grace given to us by Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ is the grace that will bring us to glory. But it is a grace that sustains us from day to day as everything else around us continues to fall apart. Despite the dangers, despite what man may do to us, despite the unknown, the reality that's true for Christians, that was equally as true for David, is that God cares for his people. God cares for us. And if he cares for us, we ought to see that he will actually act for us or on our behalf. It doesn't mean that the trial will just magically go away. Sometimes it just gets harder. But what it does mean is that every bit of the way, every step, every tear shed, Every heartache and pain, God sees it and knows it. And yet one final and faithful, grateful day that we will have, we will actually see him face to face, and he will not turn us away coldly. He will look upon us with a tender affection and even wipe away those tears we shed. What's more than that is in the here and now is that everything that we so often just tend to hate about the trials and the hardship, the things we fear, Rather, God promises to work to good for all those who love Jesus Christ. The reason we can say any of this is because of much, again, what Paul says in Romans 8, where it says that God is for us. But that's the same thing that David even says here in this psalm, in one sense. <clears throat> right? He knows that he's just got done crying out to God for deliverance, that God would judge the evildoer. But on the basis of God's tender mercies, he knows that on that day, when he calls, he says that his enemies will turn back. Verse 9, then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. 
Right, so David's confident that when he calls upon God that he will actually be moved to compassion and defeat his enemies. He will actually put them down. Why? Because God cares for David. The reason he's able to make this assertion to begin with is even found in this next half of the verse. He says, this I know that God is for me. He's not against David like God is against the proud or against the evildoer. God is for the righteous man. God is for the one whom he loves. The knowledge that David speaks of here, though, is not just simply this idea of it being a factual thing, right? It's not just this mental sense that, hey, I know, I know God's for me. No, the reality he's speaking to is that this is bound up, of course, in what he actually knows from the scriptures, but there's this intimate knowledge that only comes by way of experience. In other words, every step of the way, David has actually taken the time to look upon all that God has done and say, I can see it. I can see God's faithful hand. I've seen how he's been faithful to his word. I can look at the scriptures and I can see how he's been faithful to Israel. I can look at the scriptures and see how he's been faithful to me. In every step of the way, David knows that God has proven faithful to what he's revealed about himself. And this is his response in the midst of the trial. Right? So think of that. This is not David when everything's going super well. This is David when everything's going wrong. This is David when men are trying to kill him. This is David when he's stuck in a cave. But David is a keen student of the word. He's a keen student of God. He meditates on God's promises. He's examined it in his life and found that in every high spot and low spot, God has still been faithful. He loves the word. He knows the word intimately. He lives out the word. But most importantly, he loves his God and knows his God and lives for his God. And so he's looking at everything in light of the promises of God, who God is, and what God has said he will do. And he says, God will not fail me. He is yet to fail me. God is for me. Right again, think of that in light of a passage like Romans 8.31, where the Apostle Paul just says that if God is for us, who can be against us? Think of that magnificent reality. Right? The whole of chapter 8 just details it in every single way, how God is actually for us. And you can go to many, many other passages of Scripture. Look at the indicative reality, just simply what God has done for you on the basis of Jesus Christ. But Romans chapter 8, he talks about this reality. You don't have to flip there. I'm just going to very quickly draw it out. He says that God has reconciled us to himself. How? Through the cross. And through the cross, he has set us free from the law of sin and death. In other words, God has brought us to a restored relationship with the Father by the basis of Christ's sacrifice. We are now freed from the law of sin and death, meaning we are no longer bound by sin. We were no longer bound by death. We are no longer condemned under the weight of our sin. We are forgiven, given eternal life, and have peace with God, objective peace with God. He also says that God has given us his spirit who helps us in our weakness. He seals us in the day of our redemption. He has adopted us as his children, and he shows his care for us by working all things to good for those who love him. The reality that Paul then wraps everything up under is that if this is all true, that we've been reconciled to God and so on and so forth, and if God is for us, then nothing can be against us then nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And when you stop and consider that reality, is that not magnificent? Is that not incredible? 
that should hold some weight. Every one of us should be able to look at all of our trials and truly, as Paul says, as a momentary affliction, especially compared with the glories that await. But in the here and now, we should be able to look at it and say, God has given us his son. He has freed me from the things that have plagued me all of my life. He's delivered me from sin. He has rescued me from death and he has forgiven me. More than this, I know that God is for me. Why? Because he sent his one and only son to die in my place. Day by day, his tender mercies guard my steps. He sees my tears. He counts them even as precious. And one great day, he will wipe all such tears from my face. When you stop and think about it, is this not the grand difference between knowing about God and actually knowing God? And what I mean by that is this, that there's, there's a difference between the man who can look at God and his word and say, there's still something wanting. I still find fault with God. Right? God is not for me in the way that I think God should be for me. There's a difference between that kind of a man and the man who looks at the scriptures and says, even in the midst of the trial, even though I'm not free from fear, even though I'm not necessarily free from doubt, that I can take these things and lay them before my father, and I know and see that my father cares for me, that he loves me, that he sent his son to die for me, and that therefore I need not fear anything that mortal man may do or anything in this life because I know that God will carry me, carry me safely to my home. I will be with him. And the tender mercies I see this day will pale in comparison to the mercies I will experience when I see him face to face. Again, I ask the question, where do you turn in the midst of your affliction, beloved? What do you do with your fear? Do you look back to Jesus Christ, that remedy that God has given us from sin? Do you look at all the wonderful promises that God has given us? Not just promises for our future, but promises that are even in effect in the here and now in one sense. Do you see that God is ultimately, through Jesus Christ, for those who are his children? You see, in other words, he's for you. The word of God is the reason why David is able to be able to say any of these things. And why he can trust in God and not fear man. This is the God whom he knows intimately. This is the God whom he spent his days studying. But this is a God who has shown himself to be faithful and shown himself to be one who cares and loves his children. Notice what he now says in verses 10 through 11. He says, In God whose word I praise, in Yahweh whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust, I shall not be afraid. And then he reiterates the same line, What can man do to me? Now notice the difference that is here between this one and the first refrain in verses 3 through 4, right? There's an additional clause in verse 10. It says, in Yahweh, whose word I praise. And what he's talking about here or invoking here is the covenant-keeping name or the covenant-keeping God of Israel, rather. The word for man in verse 11 is also different, though you would not catch it. He's saying that man is just Adam. What can Adam or dirt do to me, because that's what Adam means if you didn't know that. The point is much the same as before, that mankind is nothing in comparison with Yahweh, not only the mighty, strong Elohim above all creation, but the covenant-keeping God of Israel. 
And therefore, David has no need to fear. When he's invoking that name of Yahweh and pitting it against Adam, though, what he's doing is he's showing there's this grand gulf between man and God. And he says that in essence, he's bringing to mind the fact that God is the one who is the great I am. He is the Alpha, the Omega, the one who never changes, who doesn't have a beginning or an end. He is the absolute standard of all things. He is the perfect judge above all the earth. He is the God who has revealed himself personally to his people, and he cares for them, and he loves them. He is the God who has made covenant. And man is dirt. Man is a created one. He is the finite. He is a beginning and end. He is dependent on his creator in all things. He was brought forth from the dust of the earth, and to the dust he shall return. So David is able to say, What then shall a man form from the dust of the earth do to me if the God who made him cares for me? And the answer, of course, is nothing. This is God's world. God literally took and fashioned the dirt and breathed life into it and made man. What can man do to me? And so his response in light of this is just to praise God. Verses 12 through 13, and here's what he says. He says, your vows are binding upon me, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death, indeed, my feet from stumbling, so that I may walk before God in the light of the living. So notice what his confidence is at at this point. Right? His confidence in God's rescue of him is so certain that he just vows to give thanksgiving and praise. And yet his purpose behind it is that he might continue to walk before God in the light of the living. And this is really where I say that David's trust in God and his word and everything else fleshes out all the more because the reality of what he's talking about here is that in all of life and death, he places his hands in the creator, or he places himself in the hands of his creator, rather. Right? That phrase, in essence, is the same as what it means to walk with God. And the idea is that in all of life, he's going to live as if he is in close communion with God. He is before the face of God. He's going to set his heart to trust in God and his word, as we've already seen. He's going to order his life in obedience to God and his word, though. He's going to enjoy fellowship with his creator. He's going to, in other words, walk with God just as man was intended to in the garden. In essence, God is the one who is the giver of light and life. He is the one in whom there is no darkness or shadow of turning. He is the one whom David can be with and have no need to fear because God is the supremely powerful one over all the earth and this God who is the supremely powerful and cares for him. David had fear like any other person, right? I mean, you can see that. He had fear like any other person, And yet what he did in all of it was that he brought his fear in submission to the word of God and he came to God himself because he knew that in God there was no reason to have fear. All he did was recall who God is, what God has promised, how God has always been faithful, and then he put these men in their proper light. They are frail, fickle creatures. God is the sovereign one who loves me. So I turn to you and say that while you may not have the same covenant promises that were given to David in terms of just his kingship and everything else that we know about Israel, that you do, in fact, have the same 
God that David has, or had rather. He is the same faithful God. He is the same sovereign God. He is the same covenant-keeping God. And even though that covenant is different for us today in the sense that we know it through Jesus Christ and we have the fullness of his word, we have all the more reason to look at God and trust him. And we need not fear. We are not promised we won't see death. We are not promised we won't see violence or suffering or hardship of every sort. What we are promised, though, is that God cares for his children, that whatever may happen in this life, he will bring us safely to the very next one. We are promised that God loves us and that he has demonstrated his love to us through Jesus Christ our Lord. That if he loved us to that extent, beloved, he will not lose one. Right? So the question remains at the end of every bit of this is, do you and I actually believe this? Are we men and women of faith who trust in God and his word? And if so, my simple point to you is that we need not fear, for God cares for you. I know some of you are utterly given over to your fears, but I also know some of you well enough to know that you don't have any fear at all, but it's not because you've trusted in God and his word, but it's because you're self-sufficient. The reality for both is that the problem is still one and the same. We are to trust in God and his word. The problem is that if you're like I am or any other man, when the question arises, what can man do to me, you often think quite a bit, right? My spouse can divorce me, my children can hate me, my friends forsake me, my reputation can be ruined. I can lose everything I have. My loved ones can be killed. How about this one for size? A tyrannical government can take away my freedoms, right? How many people do you know are just spouting that off all the time? In reality, though, we ought to just simply take all of this and lay it before our God and say, in God whose word I praise, in God I put my trust. What man can do anything to me? if God is the sovereign one who cares for me. When you look at all of Scripture and how it treats this idea of fear, it breaks out into two basic categories. There are other categories, but the two big ones are these ones. You can either fear God and fear him properly, or you fear man. The question ultimately is one of perspective, or rather what I would say is if we know the word well enough, because God's perspective is the one that matters in the end. God defines mankind as a frail creature of flesh and blood who was plucked up from the dirt and he will return to the dirt, right? That's what we learned in the psalm today. And yet God is depicted as one who is not frail or finite. He is the very fullness of strength and power. He is the almighty one over every bit of creation. He is the sovereign one who cares for his people. He's not made of flesh and blood. All things that are made of flesh and blood pay homage to him. He controls even the smallest particle of dust. And beloved, if this God who is the sovereign one tells the dust where to drift, why then do we fear when circumstances go outside of our control, when we know that he is the one who is in control of all things, especially if he cares for his children? The point in statements like God bottling the tears of a servant David or God numbering the hairs on your head is not to marvel at the fact that God is very good at math. That's not the point. The idea is that he actually has the audacity to care for you and I. 
in spite of knowing every bit of what we are and who we are. Right now, I mean, just, just think of this. Think of what it is that you fear most. What is it that you are afraid of? And if that were to happen to you tonight, would you be able to look and say, God still cares for me? This I know that God is for me. I will praise God. I'll praise God for who I know he is, but more importantly, I'll praise God for everything that he promises to do. Because though this life is filled with trials and is an exceedingly hard one, I know that my God is for me. Beloved, if you have Jesus Christ and you trust in him, you could actually say that thing. And you need not even fear that thing. The reason I say all of this is because, again, God is who he is. This is something that Matthew 10 illustrates so incredibly well. We don't have time to turn there, so just listen. Verses 28 through 31, this is what this illustrates for us. I mean, before this whole section, Jesus Christ is telling the disciples, he says, you're going to be beaten in the synagogues. You're going to have your own family members betray you. Mother will betray daughter. Son will betray father. Spouse against spouse, right? Because you're going to be brought to the jail before the Gentiles. You're going to be brought to the synagogues and you're going to be killed. In spite of all of this, he then turns to them and says in verses 28 through 31, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And then he says this, are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear, you are far more valuable than many sparrows. You're going to die. But do not be afraid. Your God cares for you. That's the basic gist of what Jesus told these men. You're going to die in horrendous ways. But do not be afraid. Your God cares for you. You are far more valuable than many sparrows. Not one of them falls from the sky unless God has ordained it. And so in much the same way, I, I leave you with these final words today. Contemplate the significance of the fact that God is the one who is over all things, that he is supremely sovereign. He is the mighty king. He is the covenant-keeping God, but that this covenant-keeping God loves you and cares for you that he sent his son to die for you, and in exchange he was the one who gave you Christ's righteousness. And if this is a reality, that if God has preserved you in such a way that he was able to snatch you from hellfire and give you a new heart and new affections and everything else that makes you a Christian, then why then do we fear? What can mortal man do to me? What can anybody else do to me or anything else in all creation do to me? If God is the sovereign judge, if God is the sovereign ruler, and God as the sovereign judge and ruler loves me and cares for me. So with that, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are indeed a mighty and strong God, that even as we are weak, frail, and finite creatures, that even as we often do not know the steps we are taking, let alone our next steps, that you have counted every single one of them, that you see the sigh of our heart, you know the things that plague us, you know our fears, and you do not look at us and tell us to just get a grip, but that you actually care for us, 
And so I pray that we would see this just as what it is, that it is your tender mercy, that you are also exceedingly kind to mere mortal sinners, that we would go home today and hug our loved ones and give great thanks for all that you have done. I pray for your people here that you would send them home safely. Allow them to be able to speak much of Jesus Christ and what he has done for them. For their unbelieving family members, that they would see the compassionate God of all the universe who has made a way for sinners and that you would cause them to become born again. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.